This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. Muck Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with Muck Delivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome back to a complete history of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films. Joined, as always, on this journey through Old Trafford history by the legendary football writer, Paddy Barclay. If you're watching this video, please give us a like and subscribe um, if you're watching live or on the replay and joining the conversation in the comment section as well. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. So Paddy, um, Manchester United have been storming through um, the titles. They've won two titles in a row. The Busby Babes are flying um, quite literally because this season they go on the first ever pre-season tour to Germany. They play two friendlies. Um, Really good sort of pub trivia quiz here. Who, who was United's first ever pre-season friendly against? Um, well, it was in the Olympic Stadium in Berlin in front of 60,000 people, um, which they won 3-0. But the continental adventures of United stretched back a little bit earlier through that summer. A great, so uh, I say great, great in terms of poetry and sort of the tragic aspects of it in, in the extraordinary parallel here. England's under-23s went on a summer tour to the Iron Curtain. They played in Romania um, and included in the under-23 team that summer was David Pegg and Duncan Edwards who was being flogged in just about every team that could still play him. Um, Duncan Edwards was there and they were on board a plane that went to Romania and while they were in the air Mm. they were looking out of the window and they've realised that they were being trailed by a Romanian fighter jet that actually fired at them, um, and they were forced to land pretty abruptly. Um, I think they were coming in to land anyway, but they were, I mean, the people were terrified of that. You know, you can imagine Peg and Edwards were, well, Peg certainly was, I think he moved seats in the plane, which, um, considering it was towards the end of the flight and considering what was to come in future times, so strangely similar and yeah. just be a thing that something like that could happen in those days just yeah. crazy. um well we'll 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 see even more about the um the perils of of flying in the 1950s um in the um in the european run in this season that we're coming up to 57 58 the one we're discussing today um and even before the um 
the moment that uh, I, I mean, I'm sure we're all dreading uh, getting to. Um, even before that, there was uh, um, there was there were there were, there were, there were uh, other problems with flights and, and and getting back from matches. Um, so yes, flying was not the um, luxury that uh, that it is today. It was something that many many people were frightened of at that time, and uh, not without reason. Yeah, earlier, if we remember from the last episode as well, the Bilbao trip was fraught with danger. And mm -hmm. while that part's not funny, the Busby mistrust of the Spanish water I always found to be funny as well because it, they always had this sort of, um, well, the Spanish water and food, wasn't it? Is it? Was it the Madrid game where he ordered the players only to drink bottled water or something? So there was. Oh, a, yeah. General mistrust of sort of European standards at the time well, as well. I, I can remember that even going on holidays in the sort of sixties and the seventies, you would you'd uh, mistrust um, um, anything anything foreign. I mean, to be fair, I don't think water supplies were guaranteed in Spain at that time. I mean, both Spain and Portugal have really um, made massive strides in recent decades. Um, it was quite. It's quite funny to look back now. You look at the admiration that uh, Busby and his players had for Real Madrid, especially, but Spanish football as a whole, and and the the splendor, the almost palatial splendor of the stadium built by Santiago Bernabeu for Real Madrid. Um, it's. Uh, I mean, we had a tribute to it in the previous episode by the great journalist Donny Davis. And yet the contrast between that and the fact that you couldn't even drink the tap water. Um, but it's true, all of those things that, you know, it's accurate of, of the time. Um, but this season we are talking about, uh, just one thing we ought to mention in while we're staying on a European theme, that early in the summer, England had gone on a, well, it was a post-season England tour, actually, during which Tommy Taylor, the Manchester United centre-forward, had scored a hat-trick, then two, a hat-trick against Republic of Ireland, then two against Denmark, five in two games. And this merely enhanced the reputation that he'd already made in the European Cup in the previous season, uh, when United making the... England's debut in, in the tournament had got to the semi-finals, beginning with a 10-0 home victory, 12-0 on aggregate against Anderlecht, but carrying on to, in such flamboyant style that uh, Taylor and Dennis Violet, his sort of striking partner, um, had both outscored the great Alfredo Di Stefano in that in that um, in that uh, European Cup of 1956-7. So. Um, there was a, there was a huge international dimension to these young Manchester stars, so much so that uh, Italian clubs were beginning to circle, and um, very tempting offers were laid in front of Taylor and and Busby saw that Peg, that Whelan, that Edwards, that all of the others. If he let Taylor go, or even let the idea of Taylor leaving Manchester United, United would suddenly be stripped and his his dream, the, 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 the dream team that he'd built, would have gone. So to that extent, he told the media that Taylor wasn't going, not even for £250,000, which would have been the equivalent of a billion now. 
yeah. uh, in terms of it, how much of a multiple it was of the highest fee ever paid. So, yeah, uh, Busby was very firm on that. And, of course, clubs had such a hold over the players then uh, that he was he and the board were able to. Yeah. Um, you mentioned some of the other players as well. I think around early October when Duncan Edwards turned 21, um, he was laid up in bed with flu and Inter Milan was linked with a bid for him. And it was something like, Duncan Edwards' temperature will be raising this morning, <laughs> but Busby yeah. again lays down the law saying. But yeah. it, it, the, the consequential point that we've talked about the babes earlier on in the um, series, about not just the babes in the first team, the, the squad mm. composition and all the players that were coming through and the fact that it was raising all these transfer funds. Paddy, I mean, obviously it had a, a dynamic um, all around the club where mm. I mean, now they were able to invest in floodlights, which so they could play yeah. Old Trafford this season, but um, they were also planning to redevelop Old Trafford as well. Yes, indeed they were, because the visit to the Bernabeu, which held 130,000-135,000, had made such a deep impression on Busby uh, that he went to the board and, 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 and got discussions going about, you know, we have to... You know, the United's capacity at that time, what was it, 60, 60? And, I mean, they'd only just got licensed to play European games there after, you know, with the floodlights. United's would be about half that capacity. Which, and they Busby realised that in future, the Manchester United's rivals would not just be Wolves and Bolton, but they would be... Um, Real Madrid and 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 whoever you know Milan. So he realised he would have to compete with these, uh, you know, very very high high um, earning clubs abroad. So to that extent, the plan was agreed with the board for an expansion of Old Trafford to a capacity of one hundred thousand, the same uh, as Wembley, and that would uh, at that time and that the building work would begin in the following year which was 1958. So that was where United were geared as they launched into the season 1957-8. As we talk through the season we'll talk about the um, changing ambitions but um, obviously they had a massive focus on trying to win the FA Cup after what had happened in the previous final. They, yeah. And the same with the European Cup as well. They were desperate to win that and come up against Real Madrid again. There was a, yes. a real excitement with the, within that group of young players wanting to test themselves against Real Madrid because they thought that they could go one better. You know, you yeah. had the likes of Duncan Edwards getting frustrated in the last 20 minutes of the previous game to thinking that they could get something from it. Yeah. Um, so you had this kind of backdrop to it. Um, and really perhaps that accounts for some of the complacency that came through the domestic season because, I mean, let, let's get it right, United started the season in imperious form. They win the first five, mm. scoring goals by the bucket full again. But it was then when the inconsistency and complacency came in, wasn't it, Paddy? Yes, it, it was. I mean, the, it, it, it was an accusation that had been levelled at them the previous season. Um, of course, in the end, they win and, and only misfortune contributes. Uh, to the defeat by Villa in, in that cup final you've just referred to. Uh, and they got to the European Cup uh, semi-finals, given, uh, you know, given Real Madrid a decent game. So 
it was by no means a poor season, but there had been this accusation of, of complacency. And you're quite right, it came back um, in the sort of, uh, in the autumn of 1957. Um, but they did, did they stay on top, Wayne? Or, or was, was the wobble big enough uh, to knock them off the top and let Wolves, I mean, Wolves, Wolves were the leaders. In fact, that must have been when Wolves took over, was it? Yeah, I mean United lost six games before Christmas, so they were definitely ah, that, yeah. So Wolves that that gave Wolves the chance um, to to take over the leadership, and they were going so strongly. I mean, it's extraordinary how often in this in the last few episodes of of, of this that how often we mention the rivalry between Wolves, Stan Cullis, and Matt Busby's Man United, and uh, and once again Wolves are the team to beat. They come surging back, and they are—they're on top of the league um, in the middle of of this season. In fact, they are so far ahead of United that United get to the early fixtures of 1958, and they're looking at the fixture list, and there's a sort of feeling that they've—they've they've got to go on a almost unprecedented run of victories to catch Wolves. West Brom were also ahead of them. Um, and Preston were at least keeping pace with United, if not marginally above. So it was going to require a huge feat of consistent brilliance. Now, they had done that before, the Busby Babes, but there was no little or no room for mistakes from now on. Meanwhile, they still had to cope with Europe and they still had to cope with the FA Cup. They'd had, if we deal with Europe first, they'd had Shamrock Rovers first, yeah? Yeah. And then they played Dukla Prague. And we talked about bad uh, bad weather. I think there were delays um, coming back from Prague, weren't there? There, was, yeah. there, were, there were problems. Um, so much so that for the quarterfinal, when United were drawn against Red Star Belgrade, uh, United decided we're not going to rely on airline schedules. We're going to charter a plane to go to Belgrade in February of 1958. Yeah. Um, let's talk through the complacency um, and the issues that Busby took to address that then moving into, well, the autumn in particular, we, you mentioned there. So the Shamrock Rovers, tie United overcame that comfortably. They won 6-0 in the first leg with Frank Taylor describing Billy Whelan, who was the star man of the, the show. Uh, Whirlwind yeah. Whelan, the smiling executioner, led this scientific slaughter. Um, but yeah. It was the second leg of that game. United only won 3-2 against them and they kept coming back, Shamrock. And it was like, how can a team like Shamrock come back at United? They, they were really mm -hmm. taking it for granted. Um, chief culprit in this seemed to be Eddie Coleman, who was very inconsistent. He was late to training sometimes. He was lacking a, a post-match pint. Um, and Busby dropped him at one point. And Roger Byrne had to take him aside and basically said, fix your ways or you'll be out. Um, mm -hmm. Coleman was showing signs of fixing his ways, by the way. He'd been dropped to the reserves. Um, Eddie Freddie Goodwin came in for him, um, played some games, but Coleman was coming back. He played against uh, Dukla Prague, and um, there was the, the quote from the game Eddie Coleman took the Czech Army Stadiums on the hills, the Czech Army Stadium on the hills by storm. But United shooting would not have frightened a goalkeeper in a junior <laughs> hockey match. 
Um, but he was described as the little Caesar on the day. Um, and I also wanted to point out another game against Spurs. It was one of those sort of handful of defeats before Christmas. They lost three, four, three at home to um, Spurs. But this was notable because in all the quest of Gibson and Crickmer and Rocker and Busby, all their shared ambition, I don't think that even they would have dreamt that they would have been able to play at all youth team 11, which they basically did against Spurs. Um, but from that day, um, a report from George Follows, who, who summed up the issues with Duncan Edwards in the United side, and we've talked about him before, um, the, the prop that said the, if you can call it a problem, the integration issues that Edwards was having, becoming the star man at this level. Um, obviously, the star man in the team and everything like that, but the, the problem that United were having with this hero complex that he had and wanting to be everywhere. So I'll just read the report from this Spurs game from George Follows. It says, I have hailed Duncan Edwards as Britain's best footballer, but I don't see his death or glory dashes as soccer according to the Busby blueprint. Edwards is every schoolboy's hero for several reasons. One reason is that he can still play with a schoolboy's enthusiasm despite all those well-deserved international caps. Edwards is a wonderful fellow to have in any team. He's also a wonderful team man. Every time his side, whether it be Manchester United or England, is losing, he thunders into his party piece, which is a dramatic version of the charge of the live brigade. Mm. Um, Edwards has been hailed by some critics as the best player in the world. He has been hailed by others as the best in Britain. Now I say he can only add some of Danny Blanchflower's skill to his own strength. I think he can do it. Um, there's another mm. thing in there that he's talking about. Um, he says, I don't see it as soccer according to the Busby blueprint. In fact, death or glory, Duncan is doing it so often that I categorise it as ex-certificate soccer, not to be shown to children, even though accompanied by an adult. What I take from this is not so much, yeah, it's the, the style of the play, but also in the fact that United can have a composite of this team, but one outstanding individual in it that the team is built around. And yeah. that's so important when you think about the Busby blueprint, because maybe it wasn't part of what he'd originally designed, but you have an outstanding individual who's so good that you make an accountability for that individual. Yeah. And I'm thinking in future times, we'll talk about Robson, Cantona, Ronaldo, mm. and even mm. though he's so very different to those players. Is really a pioneer of that position. Yeah. Well, I would I would add one other to that. There were times in Wayne Rooney's career that you felt, yeah. not all, but there were there were periods, and and, and you 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 obviously recognise this um, when you felt that he was taking the weight of the team on his shoulders. Yeah. And that he felt he had to, you know, attack, defend, and create all in the same game. And it, it, I'm not comparing uh, Rooney with, with with Edwards, but I'm just uh, except in this sense that it from that wonderful piece that you've just read out from George Follows, um, I, I'm so glad you found it because uh, I've never read it before, and it it it's interesting. From it, it's not just a, a fine piece of opinionated football writing that makes you wonder the two references to football, the Matt Busby way, make you wonder if Matt knew the piece was going in and wanted yeah. Duncan just to don't play as if you're Roy of the Rovers, you know, um, just, you know, just be part of the team. You know, you don't have to win every game single-handed. And it reminded me also that uh, the great Brian Glanville, now over 
over 90. And um, I asked him when I was researching my Busby book about 10 years ago, was Duncan Edwards, because he must have seen a bit of Duncan Edwards, and he, he had actually. And was he really the, the greatest player ever to play for Manchester United? And he paused before he answered. Now, it's common among Manchester United aficionados of a, of a certain age, including Wilf McGuinness, you know, people who really know their stuff, um, to, to, to treat Duncan as almost a, a god-like figure um, who, who was the greatest and no argument will be entertained. And Glanville, you know, he could see, you know, he could see that it was a sensible question. But he said, well, yes, but he was very over-energetic, physical, English, you know, um, and uh, it's interesting that that because you know of all the things when you talk about Duncan Edwards, no one ever talks about flaws. Um, but that's very very interesting to hear that at, at least at this stage of his career that he could be criticised. He wasn't above criticism. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, like I said earlier, it's a theme for the Babes throughout this season. I mean. We talked about Coleman being forced to play in the reserves. He wasn't the only one. Uh, Mark Jones was back in there for all of the start of this season with Jackie Blanchflower playing centre-off. And even at the turn of the year, Johnny Berry lost his place in the side to Kenny Morgans, who was a Welsh right-winger from the academy. Um, But maybe the biggest change, Paddy, had been made in the first team. I mean, just when you're looking at the complacency in the forward line or the defence, Busby does the complete, like, (laughs) one... 180 and you think well what's he going to do maybe sign a midfielder to sharpen things up no he goes and signs a a goalkeeper yes um always do you remember we've spoken it seems like a many episodes ago um about his constant fretting that jack crompton much as he loved him uh, you know could be improved on as the number one he buys ray wood for what was then a world record fee, what was it, 10 and a half, 12,000, something like Reg that? Allen. Oh, it was Reg, Reg Allen who was the record fee, I beg your pardon, from, uh, yes, Ray Wood came from Darlington, didn't he? Yeah. But, um, yes, Reg Allen from QPR, and then he gets Ray Wood. <clears throat> um, and he's still not convinced that this is the answer. And he's still, he seems to be fretting backwards towards his chum. Frank Swift, now working as a, in 1957-8, working as a uh, football writer for the News of the World. And Frank Swift, as you remember, was the Manchester City goalkeeper. And Matt was not only a pal of his, but he, he wanted a goalkeeper like Frank Swift, the dominator of the area. And he'd seen this in a man who'd forced his way into the Northern Ireland team that had qualified for the 1958 World Cup. And this was... Yorkshire, so Yorkshire. He went back to Yorkshire. The last signing Matt had made was four and a half years earlier, when he went to um, uh, to where did he sign Tommy Taylor from? Was it Barnsley? Barnsley, Barnsley exactly. Twenty nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine pounds. Exactly, he paid. And and so when four and a half years later he makes his first signing in all that time. His first fee paid in all of that time, which shows you the home production. Goes back Doncaster Rovers to pay 23 and a half. And this is a world record for this young man from Northern Ireland, Harry Gregg. 
And Greg was a bit of a firebrand, actually. He was a bit of a firebrand in a way almost to the day he died. It was Harry, one of the great characters of Manchester United history. But yes, he was a bit of a, a firebrand, but that was what the Busby wanted. He wanted a goalkeeper not just to be reactive and make saves. Raywood could do that. Um, but to come out and dominate his area. And as you've pointed out to me in previous conversations, Wayne, to push the field, the team up the field. And isn't it extraordinary how the more you study uh, Busby's United, the more you realize that there's nothing new in the world. And so Busby wanted to push his team further up the field, make them more compact. And for that, you just like you have Allison and, uh, and, and at Liverpool and, and Edison at Manchester City and so on, goalkeepers who can push the team up the field. Uh, uh, Busby wanted to do that by signing Greg. And Greg, in I think one of his first games, he kept two clean sheets against Leicester and somebody else. And in one of his first games, I can't remember whether it was the Leicester game or not, he came out with such ferocity to get a ball that normally would have been the centre-halves, that he knocked out of the way no less a figure than Duncan Edwards. And, and Duncan Edwards goes sprawling on the ground as Harry comes out and claims the ball. And Roger Byrne, the captain, says to him, keep coming, big man. That's what we want. And uh, so Harry that, that Harry was very much the goalkeeper that uh, that Busby wanted. He... he did make a couple of mistakes before the end of the season. But I think almost immediately uh, he made a mark. He became the assertive goalkeeper uh, that, that Busby felt United needed. Yeah, um, it's interesting to say that because I, I was, you know, whenever I look back at these things, I'm always wondering, is it accidental? Is it revolutionary? You know mm. what I mean? I remember Tommy Dockett once telling me a story about Brian Greenoff and how he moved him into defence, but it was an accident yeah. because of whatever, and it turned out to be um, turned out to be the making of his central defence. And I always wonder about things like that: how how much of it is accident and how much is it by design? But yeah, so Busby obviously wanting to. I think the big thing had been Greg had played against England in uh, an international for Northern Ireland, and even though Northern Ireland had lost. Greg's command of the box was so evident that Busby had been caught by that. Hadn't he been like, oh, I think that... And it was only a matter of weeks after that that um, United signed um, Greg. I mean, you're the same as me. We've both had the fortune of speaking to Harry for, for books that we worked on. Mm. And yeah, certainly one of the great characters in, in Manchester United and football history. I always loved... I mean, he would always say this as well. Um, first of all, he hated liners, which is what he called the likes yeah. Ray Wood, a goalkeeper would stay on his line. And not necessarily Ray Wood, but every goalkeeper of that generation. He, mm. he would always say as well, without conceit, without conceit, I knew I was one of the best. Yeah. And obviously he was one of the best at the time. And um, and he did, he, he pushed United to play up 20 yards, which um, might not today seem really significant, but considering how deep the, the play yeah. would get because of the, the defence and the fact that goalkeepers stayed on the line, um, and and the entire evolution of the defensive systems that was to come into play over the next decade, that it was crucial what he was doing. He was a revolution in that area. And you often did, well, 
you often you don't personally, but often in Manchester United history, his name gets left off when people talk about the best ever goalkeepers. Mm-hmm. I always want to make a point of it. Um, people will talk about him and his forthcoming heroics, as we're going to do. But mm-hmm. it's worth remembering his quality as a player and how much of a pioneer he was as a player because he was. Um, there's every there's every reason to believe that his signing would have been one of the most significant of the Busby era. That's right. And, and, uh, absolutely. And for, for younger um, lis- listeners and, and viewers of the podcast, um, if you want to know the character of the man, just think Peter Schmeichel. And yeah. you, you, you're there. And and uh, yes, I, I'm glad you made that point. And as we will, as we will find out, in the next episode, um, he is one of we often apply the word loosely apply the word hero to footballers. Um, Harry Gregg um, was a hero be, beyond the football field, yeah. but um, that, that's that's uh, that's for the future. Uh, right now, he's a good goalkeeper and a, a different kind of goalkeeper for Manchester United. Absolutely, and. This podcast is one of indulgence of going into the history books, but I, I couldn't let it pass without sharing a little bit of information that even Paddy wouldn't know, given oh. that I only learned it in the last year or so. So um, obviously we've had the fortune of knowing the Greg family, and I, I was touched by um, a, a conversation I had with his daughter, basically, who said Harry kept diaries of every conversation that he had. In, in his latter years and his conversation with me was in there and he said that he'd had a very nice chat with me and I was like oh that, that's really good really? Pat, did you know that your interview with Harry Gregg um for, for your book on, on Matt Busby yeah. was the last interview we ever gave and afterwards he refused to give any more interviews because he's he was so happy with that interview that that was he wanted that to be his last one well um I'm <laughs> I am overwhelmed. Uh, I I had I had no idea about that. I know it was one of the best. Well, it wasn't good. Best is the wrong word, because it was about a profoundly sad subject. It was about the air crash. But the, the I remember thinking for many years. I still think now. How after all those years, and I can't remember. What year I went over to see Harry in, in, in his beautiful home on the top of a near the top of a hill in Northern Ireland near Coleraine, and uh, he I remember thinking he must have discussed the crash a million times, and yet he gave me everything I wanted. I remember thinking not only must that have been a repetitive experience it must have been a very painful one and it's strange i was very lucky then to get that last conversation that he he cared to have about that subject um but i did feel the same i felt that there is nothing more to know about harry's role that day uh, than what he's told me now the extraordinary candor that I can remember, we can discuss it in the next episode anyway, but remind me in the next episode to tell you the story about the book Harry Gregg had been reading on that plane. 
I cannot believe that there's a funny story about that particular day, but um, if this doesn't bring a smile to your face, I don't think anything will. Anyway, we, Harry was like that though. We need to move on. Harry was like that. Um, yeah, so the early season inconsistency um, was obviously going to impact United's chances of winning the league. They weren't going to win the league, in fact. As I said they weren't going to win the league. You can't say that with certainty because they this they sort of launched this comeback where they started winning games again. They started to get over that inconsistency. The players started to come into the side, back into the side, and start to prove themselves. But you might argue by the turn of the year that the league was the third of United's priorities anyway because they sort of refocused their intentions. They were desperate to get to Wembley now. They were desperate for that European Cup final. I just want to look through um, before we move on from the reserve team as well, because we talked about the players dropping into the reserves, but the ones breaking through into the reserves into the first team. I want to run through some of the scores for the first team, uh, for the reserve team up to February. So it's five. These, these are the goals that they registered in single games. Five, four, eight, six, six, five, five, four, four, four. 5-5-4, and even in one of those, they lost 6-5 to Barnsley. So they were just registering goals at this ridiculous rate. But it did seem as though the penny was dropping for the first team against Paddy. The form was picking up. They, they looked like their yeah. old self, winning 7-2 against Bolton. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were drawn against uh, Red Star in, in the European um, quarterfinal. Like you said, Red Star, Belgrade coming to Old Trafford first. A lot of talk about a couple of their danger men. Greg... Funnily enough, we talk about his outrageous cavalier um, mm. dominating of the box. He actually is punished for this when he comes out with his goal and he's lobbed from fully 30 yards. But United yeah. in this game is admirable. Edwards charges past two players to set up Bobby Charlton and Eddie Coleman, of all people, scoring the goal with 10 minutes to go to give United. Mm. Um, not, not by any means certain lead to get through in the second leg but certainly a strong one after the start that they'd had. Do you know that that goal of Coleman's you've just talked about the winner and it was a deserved winner because the Vladimir Bera the um, the Red Star goalkeeper was considered arguably the best goalkeeper in the world and he, yeah. he didn't disappoint Old Trafford he made several great saves before Coleman got the winner with um, uh, his only his second goal in 104 appearance, 104 appearances for Manchester United. Uh, so uh, yeah, he was he was hardly prolific. In fact, Donny Davis, our my favourite journalist of the time from the Manchester Guardian, had made notes about all the players. And in uh, the note about Eddie Coleman, he'd put deadly from two yards. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it was a close-range finish, but of course brought the house down as ever uh, in Old Trafford on a, on a European night, and um, so yeah, set all all set up for a great second leg. And in fact, it was before between the two legs, I think that that great victory over Bolton. One of the critics described it as perfection, because you know how I, I know that as a football writer, you're often close. You often talk about the performance being close to perfection. It was described, I can't remember which journalist, described the 7-2 victory over, over Bolton as, as perfection. And then, well, the next game, which was the last before the trip to Belgrade, um, was at Highbury. Now, Arsenal were in, oh, look at that. 
Arsenal were mid-table, but look at that crowd. You cannot get, there's not an inch to spare on those terraces and not a seat in the stands um, because it's the visit of Manchester United. And uh, this in this match, United make it 12 goals in two games. As, as a, what a preparation that is for the trip to Belgrade. And the match was. It, do you mind if I read a couple of um, quotes from around that 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 Arsenal match? Because it was widely regarded by well, one man. In fact, it was regarded by one man who was there, a chap I met, an Arsenal fan, who's still around, who was at that game and says it was the greatest game of all time. Um, and uh, I'm just looking for a quote about that. Yes. It was United's wingers, Albert Scanlon, and uh, would it be Kenny? Kenny? Uh, no, it was. Uh, yes, it was Kenny Morgan, who you just referred to, who were the two wingers, and they were brilliant that day. And um, they uh, they they made they they were the inspiration behind United taking a three-goal lead. But uh, um, there was a foul by. Duncan Edwards on Derek Tapscott. And that angered the crowd and changed the dynamic. And David Hurd, a name that we'll hear more of, I'm sure, in the future, uh, pulled one back. Jimmy Bloomfield scored two. So it was three all. United had lost a three-goal lead. And uh, um, the stadium was going absolutely mad. But United, you know, didn't collapse, you know, even though there'd perhaps been a bit of, what was it you called it, complacency before, that the critics had maybe been vindicated by the loss of that three-goal lead. But United also had a bit of resilience and they came back, redoubled their efforts. Scanlon, again, having a great game, helped Violet to put them back on front. And Morgans provided the opening for Taylor to make it 5 Three was that the end? Oh no! Uh, Tapscott scored again for the Arsenal to make it four or five. And at the end, Dennis Evans, the Arsenal fullback, getting his breath back after being tormented by Kenny Morgan's, gave this description of the scenes at the end. Everyone was cheering, he said, not because of Arsenal, not because of United, just cheering because of the game itself. No one left until five minutes after the game had ended. They just stood cheering. And whew, <laughs> I mean, that, is, that is how good a game it was as United got ready for the trip to Belgrade. Um, and if you're wondering about this sort of complacency that United were having, and if they were coming over it, I always found this quote from Harry Gregg really interesting as well. Um, he said, when Duncan was in your team, the game was never won or lost until the final whistle was blown. We were winning by three goals and Duncan spent the entire half-time break telling us the game wasn't over. So it tells you that the powers were working behind closed doors to make sure that that complacency was being rubbed out and mm. hopefully that they were um, going to be able to do that. And you mentioned um, Scanlon and Morgans there. And yeah. I mean, that's Peg and Berry and Bill Whelan in the reserve side as well because Bobby Charlton's playing in the first team. It's just incredible strength in depth that they can make three or four well, changes. 
Well, it is because, uh, in fact, it's it's fundamental to the strength of of of, of the first team was the strength of the people behind them. Uh, I'll, to give you an example, after Highbury, the excitement and exertion of Highbury once um, they they still had to go back to Old Trafford the next day to, for the uh, for the usual Busby assessment of fitness, and that uh, in that it transpired that Roger Byrne had strained a thigh uh, during the thriller at Highbury, which kind of took a wee bit of the gloss off it, um, or would have done if, well, it did, but you couldn't have had a better replacement than the guy who was called into the squad. That was Jeff Bent. So you can add him to the list of, because although he wasn't as regular a first-team player as the other three that you just mentioned, he could have been if he'd moved somewhere else because he was constantly being sought by other clubs, including Wolves, fellow top clubs. Uh, but Busby used every trick in the book to make him happy, give him a clubhouse um, near um, in Kings Road, Stratford, near the ground, near Old Trafford. And he gave him as much money as he could. He was more or less on first team wages and uh, just said, you know, come on, you're done. He, be patient, but of course he's shown patience. He was almost in his mid-twenties now, but still a great player, a, a great club man, and a very good player, and a, a very nice guy by all accounts. Strong family man. Quite, I suppose, the opposite of cheeky little Coleman, who, you know, not uh, Tommy Taylor, who liked the pints and all that kind of stuff. What Jeff Bent you know, liked best was uh, to go back to his wife and his newborn or his recently born uh, daughter, Karen, uh, back in that clubhouse in, in Kings Road. He, um, in fact, I'll tell you another little thing about Jeff, but in fact, I'll read it from the, from the book um, about on the Monday after the Arsenal game as they're going out to Belgrade on the 3rd would have been the Monday, um, that uh, he, he used to play tricks. He had a neighbour in Kings Road who, who used to, and they were constantly playing practical jokes on each other. And uh, anyway, whatever the last joke that the neighbour had played on Jeff, it had been, it must have woken his daughter up or something. It was something really noisy like he'd banged a dustbin or something like that. And the United players had to report to Old Trafford on the, to go to Belgrade in, early in the morning. So as Jeff crept out with his suitcase at seven in the morning, he thought, I'll be in. He went around to his neighbor's house and he pressed the doorbell and he kept pressing it and kept pressing it and kept pressing it until he knew that we'd have woken his neighbor up. And then he let it go and crept away and went to Old Trafford and um, you know that was that, that was the kind of, he was just just a regular a regular guy was Jeff Bent and uh, yeah but he was now uh, he was in the squad as cover um, for Roger Byrne. Yeah Byrne obviously made the trip and was able to captain United um, they went out to Belgrade and Paddy um, if the Arsenal game was a fitting epitaph for, for the babes on British soil then yes. this one summed up them um, summed up the spirit of the team as well. 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, as we, as we know, oh, this, this is the training session before the game. And you look at that pitch. Look at the surrounds. It was freezing. It was horrible. In fact, uh, there was doubt before that the game could take place, but there, there was enough of a thaw to make it pretty obvious that it would, it, it would go ahead. After all, 52,000 tickets had been sold, every place uh, gone uh, for the game in Belgrade. And uh, there's United thinking, well, come on, we're British, we're, we're used to this kind of dreadful weather, we'll, um, we'll make a go of it. And bear in mind, they're only 2-1 up, only 2-1 up. So it's going to be a very, very tough game. Yeah, um, they storm into a 3-0 lead, Paddy, um, playing yeah. the kind of football they did in the first half against Arsenal. Yes, uh, exactly. And then and then Red Star come back into it in the second half, straight after half-time. Kostic, uh, the main man who they've been warned about in the first leg, scores two goals. Um, United, in the end, holding on for a win. Some yeah. suspect uh, um refereeing or the players were claiming there was some suspect refereeing but again at the end of the game um a real camaraderie between both clubs wasn't there you know you had both yeah both sets of players who had seemed to have an affinity with each other yes I, I, absolutely so and 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 you'll see uh Bera, the goalkeeper there who had a great game at old trafford well uh harry greg just edging into the picture there two back from uh from captain roger byrne who by the way i don't need to tell you now that he did pass his fitness test and jeff bent was left on the sidelines but uh, harry gregg certainly proved his worth despite losing uh, three goals in the comeback he made a couple of crucial saves as well uh, to help united sneak through in what was an absolute thriller in belgrade and as you rightly point out in those two games after scoring Scoring 12 goals in two games, they've now thrown away two three-goal leads. But it doesn't matter. As they say, it doesn't matter because United are through to the semi-finals of the European Cup. Yeah. And if Busby had wanted it anyway, he would have wanted it like that. Yeah. That's to go through an entertaining fashion. Um, got it. That's the Busby Babes in all of their charm and effervescent glory, told as we have done in complete realism, I hope the complete um, picture of this team, the perfect imperfections of this magnificent side, described as they were by some of the British press as the best team in the world prior to the Dortmund game in October 1956, with a club structure that had been 10 years in the making. The immortal Busby Babes. If you're watching this video, please give it a like and subscribe and join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.